is this hustle culture that's almost ingrained as part of Nigerian culture, bringing a lot of struggle, a lot of poverty. But you also have the power to change that. To get the same recognition that your white friends get, you're always going to have to work twice as hard. And I just turned around and said, oh, cool, I'll work twice as hard then. I think it was two weeks after I got promoted the last time that I realized if I get one more promotion, I'll get so comfortable, I'll never quit. So decided to just hand in my notice. And then, yeah, just kind of took a bit of a leap of faith. And then four years later, here we are. There can be stressful months where you're not quite sure where the next client's gonna come from or those few weeks where things aren't going well is really where you learn the most as a founder. I think that is the fundamental question of entrepreneurship, right? But actually what I find is most effective is actually just being out and meeting people. Thinking that because the day rate was lower that it meant that they were saving money, but suddenly it's taken three, four times as long as planned. You know, you, you have to pretend like you're surprised that it didn't work out. <laughs> We have had instances, you know, where clients' funding gets pulled, where an investor had committed, and then suddenly they get either spooked or run out of money in other places and need to pull out the investment they were planning. So we've had to find ways to kind of still make it work with those companies. My next guest, Bobby Idogo, is the founder and CEO of Radically Digital, one of the UK's fastest growing tech consulting firms who build digital products for the likes of Wagamama, Ovo Energy, plus a lot of exciting startups. He's also a Forbes 30 under 30. Woo woo. So it's safe to say Bobby has come a very long way from his early days as a boy in Nigeria to being a successful entrepreneur here in London. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be here. <laughs> so let's rewind the clock. Tell us about your um, your journey as a young boy from Nigeria to, to where you are now. Let's uh, kind of go back to the early days there. Sure. Um, so born in Nigeria, lived there until I was seven. Um, so... After that, family decided to move. Initially, the plan was to the UK, but then um, in the early 2000s, the UK was getting a lot tougher when it came to migration into the country, whereas Ireland was just opening its borders. So we ended up settling in Ireland in a town called Dundalk. Um, so grew up there. Definitely a bit of culture shock at first, but um, generally speaking, the Irish were incredibly welcoming people. Um, and yeah, had a great time and a great upbringing there but um as i got older i guess hit a point where i'd graduated from trinity in dublin i was just looking for something a little bit more fast-paced looking for a wider breadth of clients i was working in deloitte at the time so london made a lot of sense it's it's quite a common path for trinity graduates especially to move from dublin to london um, already had a lot of friends based over here, so it was quite an easy transition. Amazing. And I don't know if it's because I now know that you grew up in Ireland, that I'm hearing it, but I'm sensing the, the Irish a little in your accent as well, which is which is so funny when obviously you weren't, you weren't born there and didn't grow up there. So a really yeah. interesting mix. Yeah. So um, a lot of people assume I'm American. Actually, I get that <laughs> quite a bit. But yeah, there's definitely a hint of Irish. I can turn it up, but normally it's quite... Um, a lot more neutral. You can turn it off or dial it down accordingly, which reminds me of something we mentioned around code switching. So 
Yeah. We'll get into that as well. I mean, there's lots that I want to get stuck into with you. Um, I know you've got a really interesting story, um, but I guess on a similar sort of note, a quote that I love by good old Gary V is having the advantage of adversity. And mm. you've got a great philosophy when it comes to not having the upper hand in life. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I think when we when we first spoke before the podcast, I talked a bit about um, this part of my mindset or part of my one of my mantras is one is if you can do something if if something's wrong, the first thing I ask myself is can I do something about it? If I can, then I will do everything I can to make it right. If I can't, then there's no point stressing about it. Move on to the next challenge, essentially, um, which helps avoid a lot of stress, which as an entrepreneur, there's plenty more stress to follow. So there's no point stressing about the things that you can't change. Um, and then the second philosophy focuses on making sure that I never have a victim mindset. So we all have advantages and we all have disadvantages in life so some could argue that you know being black as a founder it sets me back but i could also argue that i'm also a male which in other elements of looking at privilege sets you forward so we've all got things that are considered as disadvantages or um things that should hold us back and i, I do really feel like it depends on where your mindset is at to some extent mm. Um, of whether you wait for the world to be a completely fair place or whether you take action and I guess in whatever way you can create that world that you're looking to see and, and put that adversity aside to focus on, you know, you do have other privileges that you can kind of bring out into the world as well. I completely agree. I'm also acutely aware of the fact that it is a sensitive topic, but it's an, it's an interesting one I want to just stick with for a second because I wonder whether now whether it is social media or just the new attitude with Gen Z or woke culture or whatever, which none of them are bad things, but the positives that we're experiencing on on this kind of general subject is around feeling like you've, you're, you've been seen, you're being seen, you're heard, the validation, mm. there's you know labels for everything, good and bad, but I'm completely with you where it is ultimately your choice what you want to do with that and I do think it's easier it's the easier option to sit and wallow with that victimhood yeah. as opposed to as you say like okay this is you know accept it for what it is and make it work for you if you can but as I said I know that there's sensitivities with that and I as I'm saying it I mm. feel like it's it's easier said than done but no, absolutely <laughs> and uh, I think um, actually, something that Stephen Bartlett's mentioned in his podcast a few times around is mindset of privilege. And I do think having a growth mindset or a mindset that's like, cool, this is bad or, you know, I don't know if you can swear on this podcast. You can definitely All right, swear. This it's is totally shit. fine. <laughs> but instead of wallowing in this shit, being like, cool, this is shit. We'll move past it. Right. We'll keep going. Um, mm. It's Yes, it's not ideal, but move on. Mm. Um, and I'm realized more and more as I've met more and more entrepreneurs that a lot of them share that mindset mm. of yes everything's on fire but here's <laughs> something I can tackle I'm going to go head straight head first into you know making that element of things better mm. whereas um, I meet a lot of other people who are more likely to wallow in the fact that things aren't perfect or that life isn't fair or mm. that they're they're held back in some way and that's not to say that um, that is fair because it's absolutely not fair it just depends on how you react to it sure how much of your mindset do you think is down to 
who you happen to be naturally as a person, as in like how you're wired mm. versus the upbringing that you had. I guess it's the nature versus nurture because it is even, mm. whilst I agree with you on the mindset thing, even hearing you on the first philosophy around, can I change it? No, then don't stress. If I can, then call change it. Again, whilst I agree with you, I know that on a real level, for me, it doesn't it doesn't stop it's some of that anxiety do. sometimes. Oh yeah, the anxiety right? doesn't go away. It's like, yeah, fine, I know I can't change it, but I'm still I'm still lying awake at night, mm. right? So yeah, so coming back to the question, sorry. So where do you think that comes from with you? So it's a that's a very good question. Um, I think some of it is nature, but a lot of it is um, nurture as well. I think it's it's um, regardless of whether I grew up mostly in Ireland. I still grew up with Nigerian parents and grew up with Nigerian um, philosophy and ways of thinking, where in Nigeria there's not a lot of safety net, there's not a lot of social welfare, there's not a lot of government support. You either work hard and you're successful or you don't and you struggle or rely on family to basically pick up pick up the gaps. Um, so there is this element of I guess hustle culture that's almost ingrained as part of Nigerian culture as well where everyone's got like a side business or you know multiple things on the go and everyone's got this mindset of you know there's a lot of suffering a lot of struggle a lot of poverty but you also have the power to change that mm. you do need to just kind of go out there and 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 you know do it mm. basically yeah I love that so I think some of that is definitely being ingrained and, and passed on and you know my parents didn't grow up wealthy at all my dad grew up with I think nine siblings I haven't met them all but yeah nine siblings uh same with my mom actually about nine or ten siblings they grew up in like a village in Nigeria not in one of the big cities um and then had to work incredibly hard to kind of afford to go to university then graduate university get good jobs etc and kind of um create a much more comfortable life that I've been privileged to be able to live mm. um but that secondhand fear of poverty especially with my dad I only realized as I got older my siblings and I talked about it a bit more that that's his big fear in life is going back to being poor and you can mm. kind of see it um rearing its head in certain ways of how he like reacts to things or how he brought us up because there's always this focus on success comes first and then everything else which I'm not saying is a healthy way to approach life at all and it's not for everyone at all but I do think that has been a big part of part of the mindset that I've grown up to have where it's this focus on you know going out to try and build something like we're very entrepreneurial in my family um everyone kind of works hard and has gotten good jobs or runs businesses already mm. etc that makes a lot of sense so you've grown up with that truth around you that either you work hard and you make something of yourself or you don't and there's no safety net and then you've got that closer influence with your own father which obviously mm. is kind of hitting home a bit more the whole you mentioned hustle culture now i am a recovering hustler sure. i went to the school of gary v <laughs> i used to really look up to him and um again it's kind of become another another swear word these days yeah. i i'd love to get your thoughts on how on on how we marry the idea of hustle culture and entrepreneurship because for me i don't sure. think i don't think one can exist without the other yeah i mean 
I don't know if I def- if I would say I agree with hustle culture in the way that it's portrayed by some of the you know online speakers. I don't feel like you need to be working 24 hours of the day or waking up at 4 a.m. and having a cold shower and all of that before to be successful. I don't do any of that. <laughs> I like sleep in for as long as I can. I'm every non-morning sleep person. Sleep is important, um, And I, I feel like it's more about making the most out of the hours of the day that is dedicated to work. So Amen. I try to stick to between nine. Latest I'll generally work is like seven. Yeah. But most days I'm done by like half five. Mm. Uh, weekends I generally keep free they're busy in a different way and like social life wise there's always a birthday or something on but um, it's rare that I'll work at the weekend unless there's something like very important deadline or fundraise conversation or something that has to happen Mm. Um, so I don't feel like you need to give up your entire life to hustle culture to be successful Um, but I do think you need to be willing to go further than most people probably will for your business when the time does demand it, but that's not sustainable long-term. So I do try to strike that balance between, you know, clocking out at the end of the day and then clocking back in in the morning. Very sensible. I'm very glad to hear that. I totally Mm. agree. And just before moving on, you know, sticking for a second just with this um, idea of, you know, adversity, overcoming the setbacks, you shared a really interesting um, thing that your mum actually said to you when you were younger that's really stuck with you in terms of having to work hard. Do you remember that quote? Yeah. So my mum sat me down um, after I think it was an incident with my older sister um, or possibly older sister and older brother where they were walking home from school. They were uh, quite a bit older and someone had shouted something racist at them. I was, I think, eight at the time. And she sat me down and just said, to get the same recognition that your white friends get, you're always going to have to work twice as hard. And I just turned around, and even as an eight-year-old, and said, cool, I'll work twice as hard then. And I think that's a moment that I still remember now as being... Because it's not that I didn't believe her, because I fully... like Based off of, I guess, the sincerity with how she said it, I knew that you know it's something she truly felt. Um... But at the same time, it just made me more determined to be like, cool, I'll prove them wrong. I'll, I'll work twice as hard if that's what it takes. But that doesn't mean twice as long in terms of hustle culture hours. It just means making sure that the time I am working is is like focused and it's driving value and that um, you are, you are, I guess, putting your all into the business during the hours that are for that business time. This is testament to your nature versus the nurture, linking it mm. back to that question, because that uh, moment in your childhood has stuck with you so much. And even that reaction you had as an eight-year-old, that also demonstrates, you're like, cool, okay, it is what it is, you know, accept it, that's the reality, yeah. cool, all right, that's what I'm going to have to do to be successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, yeah, I think there's there is a big part of it that is nature. I think part of it is also um so I was actually a very hyper child, like super hyperactive. Actually I was talking to my mum about this recently, um, went on a family holiday and she was saying, Yeah, I'm pretty sure you had ADHD. I'm pretty sure you still have ADHD, you just focus it all on your company now. But um so I grew up with like incredibly hyper, just like running around all over the place. And then only when we moved to Ireland that the culture shock actually made me incredibly um calm. I became a lot more introspective if that's the word and more observing of what's going on before reacting um so i think 
there is that element of like always just being quite calm and able to, and even if everything's on fire in the background, I think everyone in the company knows that uh, no matter what's going on, I don't raise my voice. It's always calm. It's always collected. You know, my brain might be going a million miles an hour, but it's always like a calm, considered response generally. Mm. And so going back to this point in time, so you grew up in Ireland, you mm. graduated from Trinity, that's amazing, and then yeah. came to London to start your career. So you come from more of a corporate background. Yeah, so started off in Deloitte in Ireland, actually, um, for a couple of years, working in advanced analytics and information management team, so more in the data space, then moved into a consultancy in London, um, uh, uh, more in the digital space, so as an agile delivery lead. Um, so during that time, got a real feel for what it's like to, I mean, to be honest, a lot of the agile me methodologies and philosophies already resonated with how I live my life anyway and how I, my approach to things where it's really about community and bringing people together and, you know, making sure I'm experimenting and short feedback loops. And I'm not a big planner and I'd rather learn by doing. Um, so quick plan, quick do, test, and then iterate kind of thing. Um, so when I started learning more about agile methodologies, I was like, well, this is just common sense because <laughs> that's how I'd always operated. Um, so became uh, very quickly a senior agile delivery manager, worked with a variety of different clients, everything from you know helping build Vogue and GQ's new websites around the world to um, working with like uh, an insurance firm, et cetera. So learned a lot there around... Um, challenges that businesses struggle with when it comes to agility and how to how to scale, um, especially scaling their tech teams and their tech products as well. So I hit a point where um, I realized I could either keep working in a company I was in. Um, I was 25 at the time, had just been promoted. Um, I think it was two weeks after I got promoted the last time that I realized if I get one more promotion, I'll get so comfortable, I'll never quit. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be 30, 40, 50, just working in different companies and never have taken the risk because at that point I'll have kids and be tied down. I mean, I'm 30 now, I still don't have kids, but in my mind I was like, yeah, by the time I'm 30, I'll have kids. <laughs> um, so decided to just hand in my notice, didn't have anything concrete lined up. Knew I wanted to build my own consulting firm. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of took a bit of a leap of faith. And then four years later, here we are. So that answers the next question I was going to ask, which was leaving the safety net of not only employment, mm. but what sounds like fairly cushy employment at these corporate roles. So it's funny hearing that the threat of getting too comfortable is what pushed you into entrepreneurship. Yeah. So actually, I never thought about it that way, but. The same way my dad's biggest fear is going back to a life of poverty or being poor. I think my biggest fear is almost the opposite side. It's getting complacent and never seeing if I've pushed myself as far as I can, which I don't know if that's healthy. I probably talk to someone about that, but it's, <laughs> it's a real fear of um, knowing I could have done more and not having done more. So I like every day when I you know finish at the end of the day, knowing I've done what I could for that day. And not looking back and thinking, oh, what if I'd taken that bigger mm -hmm. risk? What if I'd done that? So I don't spend a lot of time with regret or looking backwards because so much to look ahead and deal with. Yeah. But also because, um, you know, I take the risks as they come. So I think that is another part of, I don't know whether it comes from nature or it comes from nurture, probably a mix of both again. Mm, sure. Um, 
but that element of not wanting to be complacent has kind of always been there since I was quite young. Yeah, same. That totally resonates. And something else that totally resonates, having run my own business for a good few Mm. years, um, again, kind of agency model, is, of course, the feast and famine cycle that we invariably go through, which entrepreneurship already feels like a roller coaster at the best of times, let alone doing it in this sort of way. So I know that you've had some real highs and lows how did you can you talk us through like some of the low points that you've had at radically digital and how you navigated them so i think with any um business especially consultancy it is exactly as you say there's feasts there's famines you'll have times where um a large client will come in and then you're you know everything's great you're like oh amazing we'll hire more people and suddenly a client you've had for a while runs out of money and decides to ramp down and you're like okay and now we've got lots more people and we don't have any projects for them they're sitting on the bench and we have to pay their salaries so it can be um there can be stressful months where you're not quite sure where the next client's going to come from or how to kind of balance balance the um bench element of things so i think one of the things i've learned this year as 2023 has been an incredibly tough year for consulting i know most consultancies i speak to are are saying the exact same thing where it's been a lot worse than the lockdown years or the the, uh, pandemic years in general definitely yeah so 2023 has been quite tough in Mm -hmm. terms of just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of um delays in clients signing for certain deals Mm -hmm. as well so it's very hard to predict and manage um, your workforce or your mm. team because you don't want to ramp down the entire team. And then when a project comes in, you don't have anyone available. But yeah. yeah. Is most so, of your work at Radically Digital project-based? It is. We tend to work with long relationships with our clients. So we've got clients we've been working with for three years. And then we have other clients that are newer clients, but we've been working with them for you know six months, seven months, eight months. It tends to be more a tech partnership rather than a specific project. But we do have projects as well. Mm. Um, so it, it can, it can, yeah, it can sometimes be projects. But um, I think one of the things I learned the hard way this year was um, as twenty twenty three went along and as with most consultancies the tough months came towards the middle of the year where clients were just few and far between in terms of closing deals um so we had to do our first round of redundancies ever so it wasn't you know a huge number of people it was six people but considering our business is about 70 70 something people um it's still a decent sized part of the team it was mainly in our operational team not necessarily in our consulting team but because we built a community um, within the company that was very, very close-knit, we've built a very strong culture as a business, it was very painful, not just um, personally, because it was, but also um, for the wider team as well, because it felt like their best friends had been let go. And I had to remind some of them, like, they're still on WhatsApp. You can still message them. They're not gone forever. Um, but yeah, it did definitely have a bit of like a, an impact to the to the company as well. And I think during those times when you're going through a bit of like a down year as a business or where the economy rather is going through a bit of a, a downturn in general, it can be incredibly tough as a founder. I think one of the things I learned is one, actually being very transparent with the team was a lot more beneficial than I thought. I mean, it sounds like common sense, but to the point where you have to be quite vulnerable and I don't necessarily um, naturally like that. So I had to go outside of my comfort zone. 
um, had to be quite vulnerable and quite um, transparent all the way through to, so I sat the team down in a town hall, we walked through all of our financials, we walked through all the deals we had on the board, talked through every single deal and the stage it was in and um, you know when we expected it to close or not close, etc. And then we talked about, you know, my plans for what we were doing moving forward, the exciting things coming up, the challenges that we were going to face in the next, you know, few weeks until a few projects luckily closed and we're in a much, much better place now. Um, But those few weeks where things aren't going well is really where you learn the most as a founder, not just about how to run a company, but about yourself as well. Um, And I think... I realized for me, there was always this fear that if I had to do redundancies or if I had to shrink the team at any point, because we'd gone four years without ever having to shrink the team, which is quite relatively rare for consultancy, um, that I'd failed. And then I realized actually after I did it, that actually it was something that had to happen. And as much as might try and avoid it as much as I can, it may happen again in future where you realize actually the team needs to change or the business has changed or your client demands have changed and you need to be willing to um, make changes to your business to reflect mm-hmm. that. And it shouldn't be seen as a like a bad word necessarily because um, you know we, we did it as humanely and as nicely as possible. We made sure we gave immense, immense support to the people that left as well to help them find new roles. Um, but it is a really challenging thing to do and something that I think um, is hard to become comfortable with as a founder as well. Mm-hmm. As much as it's part of the natural evolution, it's still, yeah. it still hurts and particularly where you strongly value community and you've built mm-hmm. a great culture. So kudos to you for you know, rebuilding the morale, reestablishing trust through transparency, being really open with the financials, communication with the team. So I think listeners can kind of take, mm-hmm. take that away with them. I'm curious, you're obviously a young entrepreneur, obviously the age hasn't got in the way of all your amazing success, but navigating these things for the first, you know, I can imagine you're coming up against a lot of things for the first time. So do you have any like advisors or do you work with a business coach at all to help advise in some of these tricky situations? So one of the things I did over the last year and a bit was I've actually built an advisory board. So we've got um, some very um, experienced people. So in my case, I think everyone builds their advisory board slightly differently. Most of my advisory board is a bit of a mix of people I've met along the way. So I met one of my advisors on a flight to Birmingham. He's a partner (laughs) in EY. Started chatting over how terrible the food was and then um, just really hit it off and then started explaining what the company did. And he was like, I'd love to get involved. And we've been talking together every week for the last year, basically. Um, You know, it's so it's been a real mix in terms of how I've come across them. But what I it's grown organically and grown with people who are actually really passionate, not just about Rad being successful, but really invested in me personally as well and want to make sure that, you know, I'm successful and uh, alongside the business as well and that I'm okay as well as these difficult decisions have to be made. Nice. So that's been incredibly helpful in terms of, um, you know, your own mental health as a founder as well as having someone to bounce ideas around and roll ideas around when you're making these bigger mm-hmm. decisions as well. Then what I did more recently as well that's been incredibly helpful and just freeing up a lot of my mental space is bringing in a fractional CFO one day a week, which is very expensive to get a good one, um, but absolutely worth the money in the long run in that um, as much as, yes, he's done you know certain things with the finances, that means that we freed up cash here or we've... Um, 
you know, applied for grants there that I didn't know we could have gone for, etc. And, you know, that is what they're there to do. A big part of the benefit he's actually brought is the fact that it's just taking all the space in your brain as an entrepreneur, as a founder that's filled up with worrying about finances, money, cash flow, invoices, late invoices, when clients are paying, all of those things, and just taking that almost all away so I can just focus on growth and where we're going and the next plans and next offerings and, you know, winning those bigger client accounts as well. So that's been a really huge help in the last few months as well. And how did you find them? So in my case, it was um, actually an introduction from a PE we were chatting to. But he comes from the CFO Center. Um, and importantly, I think why he's worked so well for us is that, you know, despite being a fractional CFO, he's actually really invested in the business and what we do. So he's really um, passionate about making sure that we grow as a business as well. And rather than just being um, there to fill a role or just to tick off a one day a week. And also the way he structures it is it's not actually one day a week. It's kind of spread out across the week. If I did any issues, I can call him up. Um, so yeah, being really helpful as well. Fantastic. And what are your decision-making processes when it does come to those tough decisions? So if you're looking at, okay, like the pipeline is drying up, these clients are paying late, um, these things are kind of winding down and you're like, right, okay, we're going to have to start looking at redundancies. What, like, is there any decision-making framework there? What's the process mm. you go through? And I guess, how much do you lean on those experts around you to navigate those tough sure. times? So I think how I personally make the bigger decisions is, um, normally I have a reasonable idea of what I think is the right direction to go, but I will roll it around with each of the advisory board members because we have a catch-up weekly, different days of the week, and then they'll each have a slightly different lens that they look at the decision from. Um, then I will speak to my leadership team as well internally if it's something that involves that, you know, they should be kept abreast of. And then based off of the different pieces of advice, I then come to my own decision. Um, so I tend not to necessarily make decisions just because someone has told me to do it because um, I don't think, you know, it's it's necessarily the best way to run a business. You still have to have your own mind and your own ideas of where you see the vision of the company going. But it's definitely helpful getting these different pieces of, of advice that then piece together a bigger puzzle. Mm. So each of my advisors kind of covers a slightly different area. So one of them is, you know, ex-KPMG head of sales. Another one is senior people business partner in a large um, fintech. So more about the people side of the business. Another one is more focused on um, an ex-CFO, so more on the like, financial side and and growth and fundraising and things like that so they'll all have slightly different lenses they look at the same challenge from where one might look at it purely from the numbers point of view as you know yep numbers make sense make that decision but then the others will look at it from what people point of view and what the impact of morale might be like and try and balance it but um a lot of the time they more just help you get to the decision that you already know is the right answer um by just asking the right questions to kind of pull out what your motivations are and what actually is important to you sure. around the decision you make. So yes, it adds more confidence to yeah, exactly. what your intuition was maybe telling you. This advisory board reminds me of what Scott Galloway calls the kitchen cabinet. Mm, okay. <laughs> and uh, curious about this as well. I've never had an advisory board myself, which mm. is why I'm also curious. But in business, there's so many different things you could invest your money into. I presume yeah. they've got 
salaries? Is that how it works? No, or? Uh, I think one of them we do pay, and okay. then the rest actually just do it because again they're very invested in in like me and in the success of Rod. I volunteer voluntarily decided I'm going to give them all shares. Right, um, but that's not something they've actually asked for. But okay. I don't think that's necessarily the norm. I think generally you do pay your advisors. Yeah, this yeah. is what I was wondering because whenever I did look into it very briefly, I think like the going rate was I think mm. like twenty thirty k for that minimal amount of time. Mm. Um, not to say it's not high quality, but sure. like the day day a week day a month whatever to attend the meetings and stuff so it's all these things that you know what yeah. are what's necessary versus the nice to haves when you've really got to keep sure. your eye and i think when you're, you're keeping the eye on the ball with the finances another tricky balance that i'd love to get your views on as well is being lean and making sure you're looking after the runway and the people that you are holding on to you're able to pay their salaries mm. at the end of the month so taking more of that conservative view versus mm. sometimes you got to spend money to make money sometimes you got to yeah. take a bit of a punt sometimes you can't work out an accurate ROI on what this thing will be but sometimes you've just got to take some of those chances yeah. so how do you balance that that's a very I guess good what, what's your fractional yeah. CFO taught you about? <laughs> I guess it's just no, risk that's, appetite. It's a very isn't good it? question. Yeah, it's a, it, it, a lot of it comes down to your risk appetite. I think first of all, just on the advisor piece, I think um, you can go down the route of hiring professional advisors, and they, I'm sure, they're absolutely amazing um, and add a lot of value. But there's, it's very underestimated or underrated rather. You've got probably advisors around you already. It could be family members that are essentially you go to for advice. It could be friends who are running their own businesses that you may not think is related to yours, but they might just be a few years ahead and have already dealt with the same challenges. Um, it could be, you know, someone you meet with at the weekend for drinks that you always kind of bounce your ideas off of. And why not just like formalize that relationship a little bit more and have it as a weekly catch up? You can still do it over drinks. It doesn't have to be super formal. That's the difference between where it's like a non-executive director or a NED and where it's an advisory board. So advisory board is a lot more informal. It can be whatever you want it to be. They can input or not input as much as you want them to as well. Um, so that's that's the structure that I feel works best for me at the moment. I will need to build a more formal board as the company is now growing to a point where we're gonna need to have a lot more of that governance structure in place. Um, but to answer your second question around how do you balance that risk reward um, challenge I think that is the fundamental question of entrepreneurship right it's all about um, risk reward and how much risk to take for how much reward and when to make the right moves mm -hmm. so it's not an easy thing to answer but I think for me personally um, in the past I'd say the first three years of the company it was very much a grow 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 mindset um, which is perfectly fine when the economy was kind of not booming because we did have pandemics and lockdowns and all of that but generally people had businesses had money to spend um and then this last 12 months has been more of a need to button down the hatches um go a lot leaner um so i've had to learn how to run a business in a down economy time which is a very different skill set and a very different risk reward um, mindset you have yeah. to have as well where everything now requires a lot more upside before i'll make the risk but um i think it's actually a question i've asked recently as well as i've had a couple opportunities come up where you know one of them is with like an seo agency another one was with um 
putting some money into, I think it was Gartner or something, where it's like, okay, yes, we could get lots of reward for this, but do I want to take the risk? Whereas, you know, two years ago, I'd have been like, yeah, cool, good reward, let's do it. Like, quick decision-making. I think it's forced me to um, slow down that decision-making process, which has its benefits for sure, and that we're now a lot leaner and a lot more... Um, in a much better place financially, profitability-wise, etc., going forward, and in a much more um, stable, sustainable in the long run. But if we want to keep that growth going, we're also going to have to go back to taking more risks as the economy starts to open up again. So it's not one that I think I found the perfect balance for. I think your answer to it will change based off of things outside of your business as well, mm-hmm. like what's happening in the in the market or industry that you're in. Um, right now, I'm having to be a lot more risk conscious. Three months from now, I might be back into grow, grow, grow mode and like, let's go out and hire. Mm, you modulate accordingly. Exactly. So now you're in a leaner position, but that wasn't always the case. Tell us about your expensive experiment where I think you oh. hired a ton of SDRs, was it? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a couple, but yeah. So, uh, <laughs> built a whole, you know, built a sales team around our then head of sales. Um, so ran for anywhere between six to eight months, et cetera. Realized, actually, sorry, the, there were a couple iterations of that team, but overall it was maybe like a year or more of like different salespeople within the sales team. Realized actually that um, in a very expensive way after paying all these salaries, actually for our industry and for consulting, um, the best people to actually sell are the one, the founder, and then two, the senior delivery people within the organization who actually can understand the challenges and the technical elements as well as empathize with clients as well. So it's much easier to have a conversation where you can actually solutionize on the fly and and almost solve the challenges as you're going rather than a salesperson that then needs to bring it back in and it takes a much longer process. So salespeople are absolutely definitely still needed, but it's to help facilitate the conversations and open doors and kind of start start those conversations. Mm. Um, but definitely in partnership with someone with the um, consultative experience to be able to actually um, bring some of that expertise into the conversation mm. as well. So we've had to change our entire approach to sales, actually back to what it was in the early days of the company. Um, which is quite interesting. There's a lot of things that we've maybe experimented with along the way and then gone back to actually we had it right in the first place. <laughs> um, so I'm more involved now in the selling process, our um, head of build, our head of delivery, etc. And that's where we're seeing a lot of our clients coming through now. Mm. Um, but we do have an enterprise sales manager who's great, um, who is um, also starting to open up some new doors into new clients mm. as well. Do you use any particular tools in the sales process to help you, especially with more of like the colder outreach, mm. which I don't think anyone really enjoys doing, yeah. but like you've got to do so your service based B2B business. Like what are some of your mm. like tricks and tips that you've learned over the years with that? So again, that's one of those areas where it's, do you invest in one of the hundreds of platforms that promise you to get you, you know, 10 qualified leads a week to ready to buy um but you know if they all worked then there wouldn't be a hundred of them um or do you just carry on with what you're doing so in the very early days of rad we dabbled with one and i guess got burnt a little bit so essentially they didn't really turn around the leads they promised and the ones they did turn around weren't very high quality they were you know either way too early weren't actually interested in buying etc so we've avoided that since but that's not to say that you know they wouldn't actually be useful so what we do use right now is just 
generally the standard stuff like we use HubSpot for CRM management. We do have Zoom Info, but we haven't actually gotten that much value out of it um, to date. We also use LinkedIn, of course, but actually what I find is most effective is actually just being out and meeting people. Um, having a conversation with someone at a dinner or at an event or even just out at the pub has gotten us a lot more clients than um, anything we've done with like online tools where we're spending thousands or in some mm-hmm. cases like tens of thousands on platforms and things to help facilitate that. So follow-up question to that. This is really interesting, at least for me selfishly anyway. So this is this is great. Um, how do you manage your own energy then when it comes to that? So we touched a little bit before on, you know, we don't prescribe to the hustle culture idea of getting up at 4 a.m., cold mm. shower, late nights and everything else. Maximize the time that you are awake and working, do that. But very, very similar to you, I also go to networking events, I attend dinners mm. and all the rest of it. And now the whole event calendar is like opening back up again. So I, so something, again, selfishly, I kind of struggle with because... You want to bring your A game to that as well, right? You want to have, you want to be well rested, well slept. As a woman as well, I think you want to be presentable, which takes some time and energy to, you know, put on a nice face of makeup and stuff. I think that's a real truth, like between the genders. Um, ultimately, you want to show up as your best self to these things. But then the reality is, well, you've got the day job, you've got all this other stuff that's waiting for yeah. you. You don't get to see your partner or whatever. It's eating into the evening time. So, any like tips and lessons around that i'd love to hear yeah so that's a very good point because actually when i said earlier i clock off at like five or half five i wasn't actually factoring in evening networking events but that's because i don't really think of them as work necessarily that's a really good point where you know at least one or two evenings a week there's something on last week was an ey entrepreneurs uh dinner um this week there's there's another couple things on as well so yeah, but I mean, in my mind, if they're giving you free food and alcohol, it's not work. It's just a nice <laughs> yeah, treat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you sell, so do you great. If you don't, you don't. Just that perspective, um, that shift in your mindset then of just kind of like, well, I'm out socializing, I'm having yeah, a good time. It's to not- some extent, yeah, you're meeting interesting people. Mm. And also, I think it's I've to I've learned to have to be a lot more selective about which of the events I go to. Okay, yeah. Depending on obviously who else is going to be there. Um what type of event is it, etc. Um, so what's your criteria? What's your checklist there? Where you're like, right, I've got three invites tonight. Mm. Uh, I'm feeling a bit, I'm flagging. I've got to get up in the morning as well for an early call. What's my like top criteria for the event cool. I'm going to say yes to? So I think one is, is it people that I'll see all the time anyway? Like, right. You know, already existing partners or um, as in business consulting partners and things like that. Um, in which case I can maybe catch up another time if there's another high-profile event. Um, two is who's actually sponsoring the event or what's the likelihood that they've actually brought a crowd. So I don't, I'm sure everyone's had this where you arrive at an event, like you don't really know, you're pretty tired, you arrive and then no one else is really there and you're like, oh, I could have just skipped this. Um, and then I think the third is, I mean, as much as, yeah, I think the third is essentially what's the likelihood that it might actually lead to a relationship or something that in future becomes a client or a helpful partnership, basically. It's hard to anticipate, though, beforehand. Yeah. If it's an event you've not been to, or hmm. so I guess, is it looking at, is so this like a famous for, brand? or To some extent, but I think some of it is also, for example, if it's an event that's just for early stage startup founders and you're not, and I'm not necessarily speaking at it, I might decide the event where it's for 
you know, um, retail brands across London might be slightly higher priority because those are actually our prospective clients who can afford mm-hmm. our services right now. We do work with startup brands as well, of course, mm-hmm. um, but you got to kind of do the trade-off of um, could I bump into startup founders in other ways? You know, I'm a member of Curve Club, which you are as well, so mm-hmm. I, I meet all the startup founders there or at other events, um, whereas it might not always be an opportunity for me to bump into, I don't know, the CEO of John Lewis and these these larger brands so that's that's a harder group of people to break into or yeah. to meet casually right. or outside i guess it's how far outside of my normal network are the people that are going to be attending this event that's a good litmus test and yeah. do you ever divide and conquer these things do you have a right hand man oh, or woman that yes. goes along with you lately uh the team will tell you because uh, you get invited to a lot of these events, I just ping them in a Slack channel going like, who wants to go to this? Who wants to go to this? I need someone else to join for this. Because, yeah, there's no way you can attend all of them. And, yeah, we definitely need to divide and conquer. So I've got a really great head of people, Lily. I've got a head of delivery, Shane, head of build, Wayne. Um, and then we also try to encourage the wider team to go to events. But actually, I don't know if you've seen this, but what I've found is compared to pre-COVID where going to networking events that had like free pizza and food and certain drinks and things like that was really exciting as an employee. Now it's almost like additional work. So it's much harder to get people actually excited about going out and interacting with the wider community or industry that they're in or um, without either incentivizing or um, yeah, in some way making it more appealing for them to go. Mm. Whereas when I was an employee, because I started a company right before COVID, um, I was always like quite, if you had a few friends going, it was always exciting to pop in and see what, I don't know, Amazon was doing or what Microsoft was doing or whoever it might be mm. and also get some free pizza and beer and whatever else yeah, it might be. Yeah, I have a sneaky suspicion. Yeah. That's more down to the personalities of Possibly, yeah, <laughs> the entrepreneurial. I think we've always <laughs> kind of have that. So as the founder of a consultancy, you know, mm. B2B service provider, you not only have your own business journey, but of course you witness the experiences yeah. of other especially on the startup clients other founders and what they go through um i guess a two-part question here is one what's the typical sort of situation that they found themselves in when they come to you because i can imagine the same problems arise and i guess very similarly to that is what are the biggest patterns that you see mm-hmm. again in your position of dealing with lots of different kind of clients as a consultancy are there any commonalities or patterns that you see with your clients sure I think one of the most common things we see with our clients that come to us is they're normally at a point of distress. So in most instances, they've, specific to our industry, they've gone offshore um, or they've gotten a cheap agency in to build a product for them or as their tech partner, um, thinking that because the day rate was lower, that it meant that they were saving money, but suddenly it's taken three, four times as long as planned for it to be delivered and it still doesn't work or it's it's falling down and keeps, um, you know, uh, the infrastructure falls down every time 10 people log in or, um, or every time they want to make a change, they have to refactor everything or they've been left with this platform and they have no idea how to manage it or how to make any changes because they're not technical and the the team they got in to build it didn't really give them any documentation. So normally they're coming to us with a lot of stress and from a place of um, worry. So we're so used to this now that we, we've kind of 
you know, you, you have to pretend like you're surprised that it didn't work out, <laughs> but we've seen it not work out so many times that, yeah, generally like, go yeah, in and we're again. aware that one of the first things we need to obviously do is just reassure the client that you know, that is why we literally exist as a business. Um, we can we can fix this, we can make it better. And then that's why we tend to have these long partnerships with clients is because we've taken them from a point of high stress, high worry about the fact that, you know, they're spending lots of money with this team that's not performing. Um, so we can either blend in alongside that team for a while and then assess whether or not what they're doing is actually right. And then if it's not, we'll then obviously feed that back to the client. We can come in and do tech audits where we actually look at the entire code stack and give a report of what's the quality of the code. Or we can come in and just um, decide what elements need to be rebuilt and what elements can be kept to make sure that it's actually scalable with the product as well. Um, so this tends to be a lot more with obviously earlier stage founders where the instinct is save money. So go go for the cheapest possible development team where unless you are very technical yourself or you have experience of actually running development teams even highly experienced people will tell you it is very tough to actually manage like a a, a scrum team or an engineering team and get high value and like high quality work out of it as well Mm. so i would generally avoid advice against it unless you have a very technical person that can kind of advise you on how to get the most out of your offshore Mm. team because we have you know we can work in that structure as well where we're the local tech partner from strategy perspective and then the development is done offshore mm. um, by you know the client's existing team um, so i think that's one aspect of it i think another is another thing we tend to see in the market right now is obviously a lot of um, early stage companies struggling with funding so we have had instances you know where clients funding gets pulled where an investor had committed and then suddenly they get either spooked or run out of money in other places and need to pull out the investment they were planning. So we've had to find ways to kind of still make it work with those companies, whether that's through, um, uh, we've taken equity investments in some of the companies we work with as well, um, or just working with the founder to try and make sure we're delivering enough value that gets them to a point where they unlock additional funding or that they unlock new um, client contracts, for example, as well. So that's something that we're seeing um, more frequently we're having to do with earlier stage companies. Mm-hmm. But the majority of our client base is more in that enterprise space, um, FTSE 250, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but working with the early stage is generally where the exciting, more <laughs> innovative things are happening, of course, as well. The innovation as well as all the drama and stress yes. with yes. <laughs> entrepreneurship. So for your insanity, it's great that you've got a mix of clients at Radically Digital. Was that an intentional decision to make sure you had like the bigger brands as well as startups? Yes. So in the early days, it was very much a whoever can pay, we go for it. Um, but as we've gotten bigger, we've actually just done a whole brand reposition. Our website's completely different now for which launched about two weeks ago for anyone who has seen it before you'll notice it's very different brand color identity etc now which has been a very conscious exercise over the course of this year to create move the brand into more into alignment with where we are now as a business um and also as part of that over the last uh, probably 18 months has also been a conscious shift towards um it's very difficult to market yourself as a business to both startups as well as scale-ups as well as large enterprise so it was a conscious decision to move more towards the focus being on the larger enterprises where we can help them be more disruptive and help them be more innovative but we still work with a lot of startups and scale-ups who um will come to you as a business regardless because they want that um 
more premium tier support and we can obviously find ways that we can work with them as well Mm. so because our people tend to be quite entrepreneurial as well um, they love when we give them opportunities to to practice and hone their skills and and work with um, earlier stage businesses as well and that's Mm. great for bringing that innovation into larger enterprises as well yeah fantastic well kudos to you this is amazing you're still standing i know we've all been through rough (laughs) times and uh, you've come out stronger which is fantastic so the last question i always ask my guests Mm. is um the theme of the podcast called strategy and tragedy is um centered around one of the main beliefs that sometimes the biggest lessons um, or the best lessons come from the biggest mistakes. So we have already touched on some of the downtimes yeah. and how you've navigated these low points, but is there a particular kind of hiccup or a tragedy that happened to you that's really taught you an unforgettable mistake that you're carrying forwards with you now? I'm trying to choose one. <laughs> <laughs> one of the many options. Hmm. I think the one of them was uh, I think it was at the end of 2021, start of 2022, when we were talking to this client based out in Italy, in the home building space, and conversations were going incredibly positively. They were super enthusiastic. If anything, we were the ones being slow. They were like, "Yeah, yeah, we're ready to go." Like we have, and it was going to be a huge deal. We needed to hire like ten more people to to including people on our bench just to like service this this client so they were like you know yeah yeah yeah. let's just scope this out we're ready to go we'll kick it off in january you know um budget sound fine etc so we started hiring we like built up our our additional people into our bench thinking that this project was going to close and then january came along and the client had gone completely quiet and we're like okay maybe it's just holidays or and we're like waiting a while like messaging like hey you know still here ready to go when you are and then we realized after like a few weeks i think the client then came back and told us that actually they hadn't gotten budget sign off from their boss within the business so we thought the entire time that they were the budget holder because that's how it kind of been put across to us and then we realized actually no that they didn't necessarily have full authority to sign off the budget for this oh. and that when it went back to the to the i think it was maybe the ceo or the, the investors or something it had been vetoed so we had ramped up a big bench um we then had all these people around and we had suddenly, you hired these extra Yeah, we'd people, already so hired all the they've people. They've already been hired. Oh, dear. Yeah, because we knew we'd have to move quickly. And as soon as the project started, we'd need to be ready to go. Because that's how it had been kind of communicated. So I think the big learning there, which I still do today, is until there are signatures on paper, mm. we're not going to ramp up the team. Right, right. Um, and I'm a lot more skeptical about when a deal is, like, closed, essentially. Because... Sometimes even when there are signatures on paper, clients will still try and like back out. Um, So yeah, I think that's been one of the big learnings because that was not an easy one to unpick. Luckily, we had to go out and do loads of selling. We managed to bring clients in. That then Mm. meant the bench wasn't an issue because they all got onto projects. Wow. But um, it was a challenging time for sure. Well, amazing you managed to turn that around. I mean, it sounds like you almost created more of this desperate situation that (laughs) that got you, landed you all these new clients. Sometimes that is when you get the most clients (laughs) is when you have to get the more clients. Yeah, there is no alternative. That's crazy. But again, you came out better and you learned a good lesson from it. So Mm. congratulations. Thank you. 
Bobby, thank you so much. You this has been me. really interesting. Thank you for sharing kind of the ups and the downs. I've loved the practical tips and tools mm. and um, lessons that you've taken. And well done again. It sounds like you're really doing well for yourself. So congratulations. If you made it this far into the podcast, then you are my new hero. Thank you so, so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please hit that subscribe button. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Take care.